Good morning. Hopefully you all are awake. You got sleep last night. Nobody was up late past midnight, right? Just kidding. I understand. Uh, Just real quick before we start this morning, I'm uh, Joe Case, discipleship pastor. Um, For those of you who are in Ernie McFarland's class, we're actually doing a switcheroo now. Ernie's class is going to be meeting in the Family Life Center starting this morning in Sunday school. And uh, my class will be moving to where Ernie's class is up in the upper sanctuary in the back. And then uh, the young people will be meeting up in the front of the sanctuary. So don't get confused by all the logistics uh, as we uh, go into uh, the Sunday school hour this morning. And also I would ask you to uh, continue to be diligent. If you're interested in signing up for a small group, we still have the tables back there. And we have uh, opportunity if you're interested. We had a lot of people in the survey that we took last spring say that they were interested in being part of a small group. So we have uh, leaders identified, and now we need people who are interested to identify themselves. So sign up if you can, uh, and uh, let us know so that we can uh, engage you and get that started in January. It's the second Sunday of Advent already. Um, And I don't know about you, but in my emails all week, I have been getting Cyber Monday deals are still in effect. And like Best Buy sent me an email last night at 6 o'clock and said there's only three more hours to take advantage of those Cyber Monday deals. I'm like, Cyber Monday was last Monday. Uh, You know, and Black Friday is a part of our culture now. And it was funny, um, you know, this whole notion of getting a deal and getting out there, it's almost like people have it in their blood and they got to pounce on it. And they're really energetic and, and engaged about it. We were at my mom and dad's for... Uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and my little brother, he's not so little, he's like 38, 39 years old, but it's after dinner, and we're watching a football game, and it was kind of boring, Uh, and he's like, hey, do you want to go shopping? You know, he wanted to go, uh, we were over in Troy, he wanted to go to the mall in Beaver Creek uh, to take advantage of some Black Friday deal, and I'm like, Dude, <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. I'm not really into that. And, and his wife, uh, my sister-in-law, walks in the room and she hears us talking. And she says, Jeff, she says, do you remember last year on Thanksgiving Day when we went to Beaver Creek and we went through all of the turmoil we went through and we finally got out to the car and you looked at me in the eyes and you said, remind me to never do that again. <laughs> and Jeff kind of looks at me and he has this little cute, you know, Cheshire cat smile. And he goes, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but it's all about getting the best deal, you know. And he actually went and I stayed home and spent time with my parents. And uh, this whole notion of getting the best deal, uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, it's the kickoff to the commercialized uh, version of the holiday season. Um, and we kicked off Advent last week, a part of this series called The Gift. And you'll remember that Pastor Josh, he, he talked about how uh, the, the gift of Christ is this mighty, wonderful, mind-blowing counselor as a gift. And we are going to be looking uh, this morning at Christ as a mighty God. Mighty God is the theme this morning, and I'm going to be all over the scriptures, so I'm not going to have you stand. We've already, uh, Brian already read Isaiah 9, 6, uh, and in the New Living Translation, it describes these qualities as royal titles. 
uh, aspects of who God is, who Christ is, our Savior is, that was prophesied so many years ago. And I want to pull apart this morning this whole concept of mighty, uh, because we have this concept in our mind of what a mighty God is and what a mighty God should be, and, and we're going uh, to look at this. And as I was starting to study this passage, I was looking at the word mighty, and I'm always curious about what the original word is that the Hebrew uh, scribes wrote. And so I went and did a little bit of research. And the word for mighty in Hebrew is a word, in, and it's uh, pronounced gibor. Uh, it sounds like gibor. And, and that word mighty, the English language is so simplified. And when you get into other languages, there are so many different ways to say the word mighty. And the word gibor means strong. It means defender. It means dominator. Kind of like the Buckeyes last night, right? The, the Buckeyes were Gabor last evening against the Wisconsin Badgers in the Big Ten Championship game. It also means heroic. Mighty means heroic God. And so we're going to look at this concept of mighty God this morning through this lens of the Hebrew word uh, Gabor. First of all, let's look at this whole concept of mighty God in the scripture. Because it's all over the place, and we're going to cover a lot of ground here, so get your running shoes on and get ready to run with me here. But first of all, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, we see this concept of mighty God. It's simple. It's right in front of our face in the creation story, right? I mean, the fact that God just uttered, you know, let there be light, and creation was spawned, and all of this wonderful uh, universe that we find ourselves in the middle of was created and is sustained by the mighty power of God. Also in Genesis, we see the judgmental might of God in the flood and how God uh, rained down judgment, uh, literally rained down judgment upon the, the sinful world. Uh, and Noah and his family got in the ark and they were spared. But we see the mighty power of God demonstrated uh, in in the, the story of the flood. We see the mighty defending power of God in the book of Exodus as God intervenes on behalf of his people and he calls out Moses to be his representative and God leads his people out of captivity in Israel uh, and, and leads them into uh, liberty. And we see the might of God in this pillar of fire and it's just awesome and incredible. And Hollywood can do it no justice, but they're going to try to do it with the Russell Crowe movie here in a couple of months. Uh, but the might of God represented in his creative power, his judgmental power, his defending power. Then you go all the way to the other end, the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4, 8, we read that in heaven, there's this picture of all these creatures and these angels and all of these beings who would scare the bejeebers out of all of us if we ever ran into them on the street. They are worshiping the mighty God and constantly right now in heaven, right now in heaven, worship is happening. Think about that. And when we worship here, we align with what's going on in heaven all the time. And they're worshiping in the heavens and they're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And, and in Revelation, we, we see this mighty, never 
unending power of God represented in this, uh, this picture that's painted for us in the, in the revelation of John in chapter four. God always is. Amen? God always is. And I love Brian's testimony this morning uh, about Kennedy. We did not talk before the service, but this is kind of a major point of the mighty power of God. God's mighty power always is, and God's mighty power will never stop. It will never cease. It is perpetual power. It's a power that we can't replicate, you know? And I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm pretty good if I get some rest on Saturday and if I get my Sunday Nazarene nap uh, and I'm able to recharge my batteries a little bit. Monday and Tuesday of any given week are usually my best days where I've got my best energy that I can be creative and I can be productive But after I get past Tuesday, I start running down a little bit. There's a reason why they call Wednesday hump day, right? (laughs) Because you got to get over that hump. Um, And then by Thursday, I get home in the evening. You can ask Vicki. Usually on Thursday nights, I get home in the evening. And from the time I get home, I eat dinner. I sit in my easy chair. And I'm just kind of like, And then by Friday, I get home and I'm spent just mentally Emotionally, it was like this this last week. And usually on Friday, it's not a good time to try to ask me to do something creative, (laughs) you know, or to exert a lot of energy uh, because my battery is depleted and I need to replenish that energy because my energy is not perpetual. Now, some of you just go and I don't know how you do it. And I love the fact that you can be that way. And uh, you know who you are. Uh, you don't have that cycle and you're just able to, to keep it up a little bit more. But the mighty power of God is perpetual. We can't replicate it. Think about our most sophisticated, sophisticated technology that we have. You know, nuclear power. Nuclear power. Or as George W. Bush would say, nuclear. <laughs> nuclear power. Right? I was doing a little research and uh, the United States Navy, these huge aircraft carriers are powered by Nuclear reactors. And nuclear reactor, our most sophisticated technology, 50 years. It'll last 50 years. Now, that's better than 50 days. It's better than 50 hours. But it is not, uh, it's not unlimited. It's not unlimited. It, it can go on and on and on. We can't replicate the mighty power of God. Uh, even when this earth ends, the mighty power of God is going to continue and go on and go on and go on. So we see the mighty power of God in Scripture. We see it, uh, we see it in the life of Christ also, right? I mean, we can, we can just kind of go all the way through the life of Christ and see the mighty power of God that's demonstrated. First of all, Christ, we saw in his life, his, the mighty power of God revealed over nature. Who, you know, else has walked on water, Right? Takes a little bit of might and power to do something like that. Who, with one word, peace, be still, can calm the storm? Nobody uh, can do that. We see that in Christ's life. In Christ's life, we also see the might of God in the physical uh, and spiritual realm. In Mark chapter 1, you can just like go through the book of Mark real quick. Uh, 16 chapters, and you can just get all sorts of great information in one sit-down read. Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals this man with leprosy. 
the mighty power of God uh, in this story. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This guy believed in the mighty power of God represented in Jesus Christ and filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man and he said, I am willing and be clean. And immediately the leprosy left the man and the man was cured. The mighty power of God in physical healing. We also see it in the story in Mark chapter 2 where the people lower the man through the roof because they can't get to Jesus physically, but their friend is sick and he needs healed. And they lower him through the roof and Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus has the mighty power to forgive sins. But the people there didn't get it. Uh, Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves in Mark chapter 2, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Why is it easy, which is easier, to say that to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up and take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of everybody there, and they were amazed. The mighty power of God, not only in physical healing, through Christ, but also in the forgiveness of sins in the moment in his earthly walk and in the healing of this man. And we see it not only in physical uh, healing, but we also see the might of God through Christ over the spiritual realm. Because if you go up to Mark chapter 5, Jesus casts out this demon named Legion, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus says to the, the man who's possessed by this demon, he says, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked the demon, what's your name? What's your name, demon? And the demon says, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. I mean, you'd think that the demon would say, we've got you outnumbered, Jesus. We're many. We're Legion. You're one. Uh, But instead, the demon begs Jesus again and again to not send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go to them. Jesus then gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. Jesus, the mighty power of God, not only in physical healing and in forgiveness, but also in dominion over the demons in the spiritual realm. This is the mighty God that we serve this morning. And in the life of Christ, we see the might of God also revealed in his intellect, in his intellectual wisdom, and in his teaching Authority. I mean, look at the teaching authority of Christ in the parables. If you just go through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, the crowds are gathered to follow him and he preaches about uh, the parable of the sower and the parable of the lampstand and the parable of the mustard seed. And Jesus takes these, these powerful, profound truths and he uses simple language, simple metaphors, and he's able to make a powerful impact uh, by teaching in a very simple way to the common man the truth of God to reveal the character of God and the might of God and the love of God to these people. And these people are just eating it up and the crowds keep growing and following him. And the might of God is also demonstrated in his uh, authority and his dominance over the scholars of that day. I love the story in Mark chapter 11 
uh, Jesus is uh, coming into Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, it says, They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they're all coming at him. So the board's coming at him. You know, the district superintendent's coming at him. All the, the smart intellectual people from the universities are coming at him. The best of the best. And they, they ask him, they say, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do it? So that's pretty heavy stuff. When the best of the best are coming at you intellectually and saying, who gave you the authority to do these things? I love Jesus. He's, you know, you know, we're all created in the image of God. And I just, every once in a while, this is one of those stories where I see a little bit of sarcasm, you know, come out in, in this verse. And Jesus, in response to this question, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus replied, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Jesus, very authoritative. He just flipped the, the whole argument on him. John's baptism, heaven or from men? Tell me. They all kind of said, well, time out. Authorities. And they go over here and they huddle and they're going back and forth on what they should come in. And they basically come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. We don't know. And Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things because my authority comes from on high and I don't have to declare my authority. But he was the, the mighty power of God represented in Christ through healing, through spiritual power, through spiritual dominion, through, through power over nature and through intellectual power and authority over the great teachers of that day. And ultimately in the life of Christ, obviously the mighty power of God revealed in the resurrection, right? I mean, we are here and we are celebrating the birth of Christ as we uh, celebrate the Christmas season. But we are, that's, Christmas is just the setup. You know, that's the, the offering of the gift and the real might of God is revealed in the resurrection power of God in Jesus Christ. It's the mighty power of God. It's all over the scripture, right? I think we just covered all of that. Second here, it's a mighty mystery though, if you think about it. If you think about it, there's no denying the mighty power of God. So why Christ? Why the manger? Why the humble birth? Why the cross? Why could, if God's so big and God is so mighty and so dominating, why can't he just say, it's all fixed? It's, you know, it's all, that's a mystery to us. Because if we had that power and if we had that authority, we would probably just choose to wipe the slate clean and go. And so I want to look into this, this just a little bit this morning because it's really important to understand the mighty power of God. You know, I think sometimes we're guilty of taming God. We're guilty uh, 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 in a postmodern Christian culture of taming or thinking we're taming the mighty power of God. I think sometimes in our minds we, oh, God is love. God, you know, I mean, that's the bumper sticker, right? God is love, baby. You know, I mean, he's just one big hug. He is just, he's just nice. He's, he's kind of like a grandpa with a white beard. Kind of like Santa Claus, right? 
He's, he's, God is love, and he, he's gruff, but he's a softy. You know, he's, he's a softy. Um, he, he'll, he'll give you passes. Um, he's so mighty, sometimes we, we acknowledge the might of God, and I think that sometimes maybe we can in our minds make ourselves think that, well, he is so mighty, so redeeming us wasn't really a big deal. I mean, it's just something on his to-do list. You've got your to-do list, and you've got all these things that you need to accomplish. And sometimes we are guilty of taming the might, the reality of the might of God. I think the reality is if heaven opened up and God revealed himself physically in our presence, we would be slain. He is a mighty God. In reality, God is holy. He is holy, and he can't be tamed at all in his very nature. As a matter of fact, God's mightiness and his holiness means that God, don't miss this, God cannot tolerate sin. God can't coexist with sin. I remember when the boys were little, we got them this magnet set. And, you know, they would love taking these magnets. Uh, Stephen, you know, he's... uh, He's in college now, but I remember when he was little, he would take these magnets of opposite polarities and try to put them together. And they would have fun just because you ever done that. You put the magnet together, it almost rolls off like it's a ball, right? It is impossible to get those polarities to come together. And that is God and sin. They cannot exist. They cannot exist. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And I, I'm a huge fan of Oswald Chambers. I was reading Chambers recently, and he had this very startling kind of quote that I, I, I found, and it, it really kind of spoke to me. It says, the revelation of God, and get this, because you're going to think, hmm, the revelation of God is that God cannot forgive sin. It's provocative, isn't it? The revelation of God is that he cannot forgive He would contradict his nature if he did. The only way we can be forgiven is by being brought back to God by atonement. God cannot tolerate sin. God cannot tolerate. He cannot be in the same room. He cannot coexist uh, with sin. And, And this whole concept of God cannot forgive sin really got my attention. I started digging into that a little bit. If you think about it, this whole concept of atonement It's all about somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay in equal measure for us to be one with God. Somebody has to pay sin for sin, action for action, word for word. Somebody has to pay for that sin. And Chambers in another place, he said, the only ground on which God can forgive us is the tremendous tragedy of the cross of Christ. The only place, the only ground on which God can forgive us is the tremendous tragedy of the cross of Christ. To put forgiveness on any other ground is unconscious blasphemy, according to Chambers. That's pretty provocative stuff. God demands atonement for sin. Christ is that atonement. And I want you to know this morning, don't be fooled into it. Christ is not God changing the rules. All right? 
God didn't change the rules through Christ to kind of fool the, the devil or to, to go against his nature. Christ has always been part of God's plan. Remember how we talked about the creative word of God in the creation story? That was Jesus. <laughs> that was the logos of God. Jesus has been around since the beginning and it's always been part of the plan. Christ is not God changing the rules. Christ is not plan B. God did not mess up in creation. God knew when he created the world and he made man with free will that Houston, there's going to be a problem. You know, he knew. God knows he is mighty. He's omniscient. He's all powerful. And he knew that Christ had to be part of the plan all along because Christ is the only way that we can be restored to a mighty God, a holy God. And that's why we celebrate during this Christmas season because Christ is arriving, our rescue is arriving. And he's a mighty God. And through this mighty mystery of demanding atonement through Christ, we kind of finish things off this morning with this whole concept of mighty sacrifice. Mighty sacrifice. A mighty God driven by love. Condescending to the lowest love. To win us back through mighty, heroic sacrifice. I don't know about you, but Jesus is my hero. Jesus is my hero. He's my Gabor. <laughs> he, he, Jesus is my mighty hero. And, and you can all just whittle it right back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Not plan B. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, not just for some, not just for a select few, but this is available to all humanity. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This mighty God is driven by love for his creation, for humanity. God has gone to the greatest lengths to win us back. He has gone to the greatest lengths to win his back. The pain and the suffering and agony of Christ was very real on my behalf. Sometimes it's really easy to paint that picture and just think that it's for the whole world, right? It was for me. It's personal. And until you get from the point of it's for the whole world and bring it down to personally acknowledging And keeping that up to date, that that was for me. There's something missing. Houston, we have have a problem. Driven by love, God's gone to the greatest lengths. The pain, the suffering of Christ, very real on my behalf. God has this, I'd give my life for theirs mentality. He has this, "I'd I'd give my life for theirs mentality that's driving his action. Um, And I was out, I was kind of looking Uh, James Ward was 20 years old and he was from Springfield, Ohio. And James Ward was seaman first class on the USS Oklahoma. And he was stationed at Pearl Harbor. Today's December 7th. A day which will live in infamy guy from Springfield, just down the road. He was 20 years old in 1940. And he was just a seaman first class. He wasn't an admiral. He, you know, he was just a regular guy. 
And he had, you know, probably been sleeping in on a Sunday morning like this. Like this. It's Sunday too, which is really weird this year, isn't it? The way it falls on the, on the calendar. And he was awoken on December 7th, 1941 from his rest uh, by the klaxons going off, battle stations, general quarters, uh, the sound of gunfire outside, confusion. They're trained. You know, if you've ever been around any of our uh, brothers and sisters in the military, the training just kicks in. Um, and he went to his battle station. And he was on the Oklahoma. If you know anything about the Pearl Harbor story, the Oklahoma was a battleship, one of eight moored at uh, Ford Island. The Japanese high-level bombers were coming in. Torpedo planes were coming in low. Um, and the uh, Oklahoma took several hits. Uh, she was damaged badly. She was burning. And she was beginning to list. You know, think of the whole room. And I would say that the Oklahoma was probably a little bit wider than this room. But think about it. The whole thing starts listing. And you're like, okay, it's going to stop. No, it kept going. The Oklahoma, when you look at the pictures of Pearl Harbor, was the ship that wound up upside down in the bay. Because it was, it was just taken out by bombs and torpedoes. And James Ward, uh, he was a hero. He was one of 15 men given the Congressional Medal of Honor. 20 years old, just down the road in Springfield. I did not know this. And in his commendation that was issued after his death, the commendation says, when it was seen that the Oklahoma was going to capsize and the order was given to abandon ship, Ward remained in a turret holding a flashlight so the remainder of the turret crew could see to escape. He didn't get out, but everybody else did. Heroic sacrifice for others. Tragic, but heroic. December 7th, right down the road, one of 15 Congressional Medal Honors that was issued for Pearl Harbor. January 1982, Arlen Williams was a bank examiner. And Arlen was in Washington. Remember the whole savings and loan crisis? Way back in the 80s, some of you are nodding your head, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. But there was a big banking crisis back in the 80s, and it was not a good time. And he was a bank examiner, and bank examiners go in, and they basically check the math of other bankers. Exciting stuff. <laughs> yes. This is coming from a guy who works for an insurance company. Exciting stuff. Just a normal guy, and he was in D.C., and he was in D.C. on a Monday for this business trip, and those trips always took longer than they usually needed to. Um, and uh, he was supposed to leave on Tuesday, but the job required him to be there until Wednesday night, um, and then it went over into Thursday. And the whole group he was working with on Thursday afternoon was in the hotel, um, and they were like, eh, we're going to wait until tomorrow to go out. He's like, I'm getting home. I want to go see my kids down in Florida. And so he hoofs it out to uh, Reagan International Airport. Snow's coming down. It's a pretty nasty weather day. And Arlen gets on uh, Air Florida Flight 90. Um, and if you remember Air Florida Flight 90, I do. I remember getting home from school. I was in the sixth grade. And usually my routine was to come home from school and to sit down with a bag of Doritos and a bottle of, a 16-ounce bottle of Pepsi. You had to take the thing off the top. I would sit down and I would watch like the Three Stooges or Tom and Jerry or something like that. 
And I remember getting home uh, and breaking news. Dan Rather uh, from Washington, D.C. Uh, Air Flight or Air Florida Flight 90 has crashed on takeoff. And uh, there's a tragedy underway, live television in the making in the Potomac in Washington, D.C. Just drove over that bridge last summer. Okay? Uh, the, the plane took off, snowstorm, ice on the wings. The pilot didn't know it. It didn't get more than about a mile down the river. If you've gone to Washington, you know that planes fly straight up the river uh, when they take off from Reagan. Struggled to take off, started going down, actually hit the bridge on the Potomac, and then the plane broke up and went into the water. And I'm sitting here watching this on television, live TV cameras. It was in the middle of a blazing snowstorm. And you could see the tail of the plane floating there. And they're showing these pictures, mass confusion. People are trying to figure out what's going on. And this unfolded on live television where there were six people clinging to the back tail of Flight 90. Everybody else in the plane had gone down with the plane. They died. Um, and these six people somehow miraculously had gotten out of their seatbelts. Um, and they had made their way up to the surface, kerosene blinding them. Uh, the water was below freezing, and so they're like in shock and confusion, and they're just clinging for life on this, on this airplane tail. And Arlen was one of these people. He was just trying to get, I'm a bank examiner, just a regular guy. And then suddenly out of nowhere, this helicopter swoops in, and uh, this helicopter sees these people. Nobody can reach them from shore because it's too far. This helicopter swoops in and has a, a life preserver on a rope, and they drop it down to the people in the water. And Arlen is the first one to get it. There's five other people there. They're all on the other side of the plane. He can hear them. He knows they're there. He takes the life preserver, and he throws it over. And he gives it to somebody, and they get lifted out. And they do this four more times. It comes down, it hits Arlen first because of the side of the plane he's on. He still hears him over there. He throws it over. Fourth person. They do it for the third person, for the second person, for the per first person over there. Finally, they come back. Arlen's gone. They didn't make it. Heroic sacrifice. This normal guy, he didn't plan on being a hero that day. But... In the moment, he sacrificed his opportunity to be rescued so that somebody else could be saved. Heroic, tragic sacrifice. Tragic. That's the tragedy of the cross. Christ, God, condescending to the lowest of the low with this I'll give my life for theirs mentality. God surrendering his mightiness. Shedding his might, shedding his power, becoming totally vulnerable because of his love for me, for you, for the whole world, but for, for you, you know? I mean, uh, is it personal this morning? The wonderful conclusion of the story of Christ is that it is not a tragedy. The resurrection is an amazing demonstration of the might of God where God swoops in and he rescues us and provides atonement so that we can be forgiven and restored into a right relationship with our creator. 
And there was a tragic sacrifice made on our behalf, but the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is that Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death. He ascended into heaven, and he sits on the throne this morning on our behalf, interceding, and he's there extolling mercy and grace for those who need it. As Pastor Josh preached last Sunday out of Hebrews chapter 4, the might of God shed for us because God loves us individually that much. Amen? Amen. That is awesome. It's easy to gloss it over. And it's easy to say all oh, that John 3.16 thing. Yep, it's, I get it. I'm good with you, Joe. But I got other stuff to do. The selection committee's on at 12.30. I got to move on. Right? That's kind of how it works. We always got something distracting us from paying attention and giving due and making sure our lives are aligned to the truth that a mighty God is our hero this morning, is our rescuer this morning. Is it personal? Is it up to date, that experience? Are we guilty of being so busy? Are we guilty of taming God? Are we guilty of just by being busy, diminishing the significance of his mightiness? Are we guilty of tolerating sin in our lives? Why'd you have to go there? Think about that. Are we guilty of tolerating sin in our lives? Because Jesus can't come unless we are ruthlessly working sin out of our lives. Right? Has the Holy Spirit been speaking to us about stuff that we've been tolerating that's really holding us down and not being able to experience the mighty power of a God who wants to rescue us? He, he wants to rescue us. But in order for us to take hold of that life preserver, we got to let go of the plane. Right? Are we guilty of taming God? Are we guilty of tolerating sin? And we rationalize it. Say, oh, I just can't help that. That's just who I am. I'm just wired that way. That website just popped up. That TV show was just on as I was flipping through the channels. I don't know how this book got here. Are we tolerating sin? Are we guilty of resisting the offer to be rescued because we're a little bit comfortable where we're at? He's a mighty God. He has made tremendous sacrifice personally for us. And he's calling us today to come to him and accept this gift. Would you stand with me this morning as we close? The gift of Christ as mighty God is better than any 
Black Friday deal you'll ever be offered. It is the best deal ever. And it's free. There's no price to you except to follow Jesus. It's a free gift for us to accept it. But we all know there's no such thing as free. Somebody had to pay somewhere for free to be offered. Right? Somebody had to pay for free to be offered. It's the best deal we'll ever have. Bought at great price. Almighty God, the creator of the universe, wants us to embrace him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. As we close here in this moment, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would examine our hearts. You are a mighty God. From Alpha to Omega. But you demand holiness. You demand that the books be balanced. You demand atonement. And we thank you this morning, Lord, for the gift of Christ. We thank you that you loved us so much individually that you would be willing to sacrifice so much to win us back. This morning, Lord, I just pray that as we close out this service this morning that you would allow your Holy Spirit to penetrate into our consciousness and shine a light on any attitudes where maybe we're taming you or thinking we're taming you and not giving you the due that you are worthy of in our hearts. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would shine a light on any sin that we may be tolerating this morning. Maybe it's some things that we don't want to let go of. And Lord, I just pray this morning that as we stand here before you, Father, that you would allow us to surrender entirely everything that we're holding on to, giving you full sway in our lives. Lord, we we want to let go of anything that we're tolerating. And Father, I pray that as we move forward in this Advent season, as we await your coming in our lives, Lord, that you would shine the light on our hearts and reveal to us maybe things that we've been tolerating, things that we need to let go of, areas where we may be resisting. Pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would penetrate our hearts, that you would convict us. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to just lay those things down and take hold of you as our mighty God, our mighty, mighty Savior. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with us this morning. I pray that as we go out into this week, as we reflect on your character and as Christ is the gift as mighty God, that we would find ways to be able to acknowledge your mightiness and demonstrate that mightiness and share your great love for us with others around us. Change us, Lord. Transform us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, I pray for that person this morning who needs to be rescued. Lord, there's somebody in here this morning that's desperate. Circumstances are overwhelming. They need to be rescued, Lord. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would drop into their life, that you would personally speak to them through the power of your Holy Spirit and rescue this morning, Lord. We're so thankful for your grace and for your mercy and for your mighty power in our lives. We're so thankful that you have condescended and put up with us.
for your patience and for your mercy. Let us live lives that are worthy of this gift, the gift of mighty God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go, God be with you this week. Thank you.